Good morning, everybody. What a passage. All right, let me open up my notes here. Uh, if you guys have been with us for any point in time, period of time at all, then you know that we've been in the book of Matthew for like three years. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna to make our way through four more verses this morning. So we're, we're shrinking the next two years down just Sunday by Sunday. Um, let me pray for us and let's, let's get going. Jesus, I just uh, thank you for this time. God, we invite you to do your work through your word. Jesus, we devote this time to you. Thank you for each individual in this room, each heart that's represented here this morning. I pray, God, as we open up your word, that you would do the hard work in actually speaking to the conditions of our hearts this morning. And uh, Jesus, we just devote this time to you. We love you. In your name, amen. Um, As I've been sort of pondering this passage this last week, I can't really help but think that this passage sort of sums up the mission statement for the Big C Church, right? Uh, and as we've been spending time with our staff and our elders over the last couple of weeks, talking through who our city is becoming, um, who our church is becoming, how we reach the city, how we disciple people, it was really hard to not have these couple of verses come up in the midst of our conversations as we boil things down very simply to what is it that God has called us to. And it really is our desire our greatest desire as a a church, that the whole church give their whole selves to God in all aspects of their lives, like in every aspect of their life. And so I think that's the call of following Jesus. It's this whole life sort of discipleship is what we're called to. And I think it's both this biblical priority and then it's also this, this missional priority. And it's a biblical priority because it's clear that those who are created in the image of God, all of us, are to give ourselves fully to God. So when we read this passage this morning, understand he's talking about giving yourselves fully to God. And that's what we were designed for, was to give ourselves fully to him. But because that's not what's happening in this world, God's in this process of redeeming people and calling us to give our whole selves to him. He's calling others to give their whole selves to him. And so then we get to sort of join God in this mission as he is calling people lives to himself. And so when I read this verse, read this verse, um, I'm reminded of this diagram that somebody once showed me years ago. Years ago, it's probably been like 15 or 20 years. Uh, I watched this person draw this diagram and it sounds so simple and so cheesy, but I, I want you to just sort of get this image in your, in your mind. Um, but it, it helped me to recognize sort of the weightiness of the call to follow Jesus. And I, I can't help, I mean, I know all scripture has weight and power behind it. I can't help but read this passage this morning and not feel a weightiness in this text. Like if we're looking at what it is that God has called us to, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and then Luke adds strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. I mean, that's simply, it's all bound up into that. But how weighty is that text? And um, I I saw somebody... uh, 15, 20 years ago, draw two circles on this whiteboard. And on the circle on the left, this person drew a throne on top of, um, within this circle, and then put this little stick figure on this throne inside this circle, this chair inside the circle, and put somebody's name on this, um, the, the stick figure. And then they begin to draw, draw things around this throne, like 
money and time and relationships and hobbies and all of these things within this sphere. And these are sort of the things that floated around this person on this throne. And then as one of the uh, many things that were around it, money and time and relationships and hobbies and all these things, the cross became one thing in the mix of everything that was in the sphere around this person that was on this throne. And then he began to draw this other sphere. And then in this other sphere, on the right, um, on that throne, this chair within the circle, he drew a cross, just simply a cross. And then above the cross, he wrote Jesus. And then in that circle, Jesus was on the throne, and then everything else in life that they began to put around this throne um, was basically around Jesus. He put everything else in life, including the stick figure that was on the original diagram on the throne. The stick figure was just a piece of this life and while revolving around Jesus that was on the throne. And I remember as this person was drawing this diagram, sort of being drawn to it and conflicted a little bit because um, in, in most cases, what, what I began to realize and what I sense a lot of time in, in my own life is that we sort of share the throne with Jesus, don't we? So as a Christian to see it black or white, like, no, I'm on the throne and all these things revolve around me, or to see, no, Jesus is on the throne and all the things revolve around him, as a believer, we often can see that diagram and be really conflicted about it, can't we? Because we don't want to acknowledge the fact that like everything in life revolves around us, but we also realize that not everything in our lives revolves around Jesus, right? And so I, I could feel conflicted, like, oh no, like if I'm going to be really honest, we sort of like to share the throne with Jesus, and then everything else sort of revolves around that. But the reality is, like the, this is the weightiness of this passage, is that that just doesn't work. That idea of sharing the throne with Jesus, it just doesn't work. You see, Jesus is either king of your whole life, or he's not king at all. He's one or the other. He's either king of, king of it all, or he's not king at all. And I remember looking at this diagram in that moment and being struck by the, the reality of this and being challenged by my own life. Does, which of these categories does my life fall into? And I've found like in my own discipleship, like in my own followership of Jesus, for me, it's really like been this moment by moment thing. It's been this day by day reality for me. It's not that like I'm not a Christian and then I am a Christian and I'm not a Christian and I am a Christian, but rather like I'm living out my surrendering to Jesus as Lord on a daily basis in a moment by moment basis. And I think one of the reasons that's so challenging for us is that we all have this sort of self-protecting sort of propensity to keep part of our lives to ourselves. Like there's an aspect of our lives that we just, we want to protect from Jesus. Like we get it. And there's a couple of things that, that, that I need to keep to myself and then all of us, and then all of us have this sort of self-protecting propensity to keep something to ourselves. And when it comes to our discipleship, when it comes to our following Jesus with our lives, um, we can't keep things from Jesus. Like, it's all his. Like, you are all in. And yet, in this passage, what we see is this call, again, to give all of ourselves to God, all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul. In Luke's gospel, he has all of our strength. It says, but when the Pharisees heard, in verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, 
they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So who are the key players in this passage? It's the Pharisees, right? And they saw that the Sadducees couldn't trip Jesus up. We talked about that last week. So now they come back, the Pharisees do, and now they want to take another shot at Jesus. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we had the Pharisees and the Herodians. They come to Jesus. They try to catch him with this question on whether or not it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. So they're trying to get Jesus to say either don't pay taxes to Caesar or pay taxes to Caesar. Um, if you, and, and then if you don't pay taxes to Caesar, then Rome's going to look at you as like this insurrectionist. And, or you do pay taxes to Caesar, and then the Jewish brothers and sisters are going to hate you for your compliance with Rome. Either way, you're sort of hosed to Jesus. And then what does Jesus respond with? He says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Jesus essentially says, there are things like taxes that you have to pay to Caesar, to the government that's been put in place over you, to these authorities. However, there are things that are God's, like the human life, the image of God, and those are never owed to Rome because those are actually God's to begin with. So give your taxes to Caesar, but your life to God, basically. Then last week, the Sadducees come to Jesus, and then they again try to slip Jesus up, right? They ask him about the resurrection because the Sadducees didn't believe in a bodily resurrection in eternity for mankind. So the Sadducees sort of cherry-picked this passage from the book of Deuteronomy that it was... And this passage was sort of re, uh, explaining remarriage after a married man without children has died and the fact that the wife should marry the brother um, uh, of the deceased uh, in order to have children with this man's brother and keep the family lineage intact. And so this is this passage that they pull out of place. And then the Sadducees sort of put this spin on this, this passage. And they, so they, the, the Sadducees asked, so if there's seven brothers and all of them died, and the wife had married all of them because the brothers continued to die, whose wife would she be in eternity? Whose wife would she be in the resurrection? And it's a group of people that don't believe in a bodily resurrection asking Jesus what he thinks about this and whose wife she will be in the resurrection. So again, um, they're trying to pin Jesus. And Jesus says, flat out, you're wrong. You're wrong, right? He says, you actually deny the scriptures and you deny the power of God. Like they were taking things out of context and they're trying to use them against Jesus to pin him down because they wanted something to accuse Jesus of. But yet again, Jesus calls them out. He says, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. Jesus goes on to say, he's not the God of the dead. He's actually the God of the living. And so you see these religious groups looking for a way to sort of literally nail Jesus to a cross. Anybody in here ever watched WWF growing up. It's like tag team, right? You're in. Like, I couldn't get him. Like, you come in. You give your shot. And then they're going back and forth, and they're just trying to find something to pin Jesus on. Jesus is so crafty. Jesus is so intelligent. And, and his responses, like, carry so much grace and, and so much love. But they're trying to pin him down. And so now the, these Pharisees are back at it. And these Pharisees come in and they send this lawyer in to ask Jesus this question to test him. Um, the, the Pharisees of these religious groups were the most strict when it, became, when it came to the law, the Mosaic law. They literally had 613 laws that they had to keep. 
Like, talk about feeling insufficient. How would you like to have to keep 600 laws in your life? Like, we struggle with just going the speed limit, right? Um, 613 laws that they had to keep, and they're, they're like trying to follow through like every jot and tittle. So imagine trying to keep up with that. And so they send this lawyer in. And keep in mind, this is a lawyer that's, the, the, the whole goal is not to keep them to the governmental law, but to keep them to the Mosaic law. And so again, they, they want to pin Jesus down. And so the lawyer asks this question, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? You could also say, he's saying, what is the weightiest commandment in the law? What carries the most weight, Jesus? And Jesus gives them this really clear answer. And he actually quotes from something called the Shema, which means to hear, Deuteronomy chapter six. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So the the Shema means to hear. In Deuteronomy six, it says, uh, verse four, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on to say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And then you look down in verse 40 in this passage, and he says, On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So this word all is kind of a key word. It means comprehensive, it means complete, it means full. In other words, it's not 99% of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. It's not you need to give 99.9% of your love to the Lord your God. It means complete, like all of it. And I want you to think about it this way. It's not so much a list of priorities, right? So sometimes we can sort of think of the greatest or the weightiest command as the number one on the priority list. And even there, we're sort of giving away what a priority actually means, right? The idea of a priority means that that's your one thing and that everything has to surround that priority. However, in the United States, it does not go that way for us. Um, We actually have priority lists that we create, but, but we put the most important thing on the top. And so in this idea that there's like, the most important thing, and then everything else kind of follows suit with that, goes underneath that. Um, We like to put God at the top and say, God is number one, and then maybe family, and then maybe like self, and then maybe work, or however it goes, maybe God, maybe self, maybe family, maybe work, however that goes for you. God would be number one on the priority list in most American Christians' priority lists. But this morning, I sort of want you to think about this differently. For loving God to be our greatest priority, it actually has to be the weightiest priority in this image. Like instead of having it at the top of our list, what if we looked at it as sort of the center of our universe instead of the top of our list? If you think about the way Jesus is actually framing this. So think about like a solar system. Like you have the sun, it's, it's the biggest thing in our solar system. It's very weighty, it's so weighty that that the, the, the fact that it's in the center of our solar system, like every other planet circles around the sun, like it's at the core of it all. And this is because the sun literally is the weightiest thing in our solar system. And so the, the gravity of the sun causes all the other planets to stay where they need to stay. That's how weighty the sun is. And what Jesus knows is that where your heart is set, whatever your heart is set on, uh, that, that, that's the sun in your life. 
whatever that thing is that everything else in your life revolves around. Like that's the thing that carries the most weight. And so whatever you love most, every other one of your loves sort of surrounds uh, the, the thing that you love most, like the planet's sort of surround the sun. And so what Jesus is telling us is that the priority of a disciple, of a follower of Jesus, is for the love of God to be the sun in their life, for the love of God to carry the most weight in their entire life. And so it doesn't mean that we don't have any other loves. It actually just means that they're sort of all in the proper place. So humans are made for the love of God to be at the center of our hearts. And so uh, I, I want you to sort of think about love like this. There's a theologian named John Frame who talks about three aspects of love when he breaks this down. And what he says is that when we truly love something biblical, that it actually has our affection, uh, and, and then it has our allegiance, and it has our action. And so affection, allegiance, and action. I really like the way he breaks this down. Action means that you do something. Like many of us have heard people say that love isn't a feeling, that it's an action. And I'd actually say that love is both a feeling and an action, isn't it? It's both an affection and it's an action. And we know that just doing something good for your spouse or just doing something good for a friend but not having any affection for them is actually not any love at all, is it? Like just to go do something for somebody but not truly love them isn't really love. You need affection and you need action, but we also need this other thing that, that, that we would define as allegiance. So action means acting with our strength. Affection means not simply loving something externally, but having affections for it in the heart, like having a genuine love internally for someone or something. But then allegiance is different because it's this like exclusive loyalty. It's like a faithfulness to the thing that you say that you love. And so how does this work out in real life for us? And it's, here's kind of like a, a really silly example of this that you'll probably kick me for later. But give me a second. Because I want you to see how these, things, these three things sort of work together. As many of you guys know, I'm part owner in a coffee shop in town. This isn't a, shameful, a shameless plug. Um, but my, my wife and I absolutely love coffee. Like, it's just our whole lives. We have, like, loved coffee. I love coffee in all three of those ways, believe it or not. But in college, what's interesting, when I think back on my college days, and I even think back on the days when I was like touring around with a bunch of skateboarders, um, I didn't care about how coffee tastes. I just liked the effect that it had on me, right? Like I could drink the crappiest coffee and put tons of cream in it and tons of sugar in it and be totally fine with it because the result that I was gonna get from the coffee was me being able to stay up all night to drive, me being able to stay up all night to uh, drive when I was on the road, not in college, just so you guys don't think I was like driving around like eight hours a night. But I could stay up all night and I could study. But after years, what's interesting, after years of drinking like bad coffee with cream and sugar in it just so I could get the effects of the coffee, um, I actually started loving coffee. Like there's something about coffee for me. And so I actually love the specific tastes of coffee so much so that I'd actually choose coffee over any other beverage, believe it or not. If I had the option on what I was gonna drink, if I needed caffeine, 
tea and Red Bull and anything else would not make the list. Like, I, my allegiance would be to coffee. And so all of the sudden, at some point in my life, as cheesy as it sound, coffee had my allegiance over any other beverage. It went from something that I drank a lot to something I actually started to enjoy. It's something that had my allegiance. There, there are times, I don't know about you, there are times that I lay in bed at night when I'm setting the alarm on my phone and I'm literally thinking about the cup of coffee that's gonna touch my lips in the morning when I get up. Does anybody else think like that? Oh yeah. You guys gave more amens to that statement than you do when I say Jesus. Um, but there are times when like, I think about coffee like that. Like, I cannot wait to have that cup of coffee. Yesterday, uh, we were snowboarding and it was like freezing cold and blizzarding. And all I could think about was like a nice hot cup of coffee after we were done snowboarding. Like I wanted the coffee more than I wanted snowboarding, you know, like so weird. Uh, anyway. So now coffee, now, now somehow in my life over time, because of my actions, actually began to draw my affections. It, it has my allegiance. Like it's silly, but there's an example. And hopefully you guys like understand what it is I'm talking about because you think about your children or you think about your spouse. Like when I got married, I literally stood and I gave my allegiance to Heather. I gave my allegiance to my wife. When I said yes to her, I said no to every other woman. Sorry, ladies. I said no to every other woman <laughs> to give my allegiance to that woman for her because what I saw in my wife was beauty and character Someone that I wanted to give myself to, to sacrificially lay my life down for. And because I've been drawn to her in my affections and because I've given her my allegiance, now I'm committed to this lifelong journey of acting for her best in my life. Why? Because I love her. I love her. And that's how allegiance and affection and action work in our lives. And what Jesus is saying is the weightiest commandment, the love that must be at the center of your life, the thing or the person that you must give your ultimate allegiance and affection and action to is actually the Lord your God. It should be the thing. And that's how this works. So I give you this like really simple example of what that could look like. But let me tell you how this can sort of sneak up on you. Because your loves in your life can actually very easily be misdirected, can't they? In this life, it's easy. Our heart can easily become divided. We can easily love things that we aren't supposed to love, fall into these traps. Or rather than having one true love at the center of it all, like God, all of a sudden we start putting something that isn't weighty enough in the center of our affections, and what does it do to our universe? It throws the whole thing off. And one of the things in the last couple of years that I know has sort of shaped and affected our loves as a people, like in America specifically, is our media consumption. Like it actually shapes our loves. It shapes our affections, like news, social media, podcasts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of these things. Because here's what's crazy is, Here's what's happening. The more we consume all of these things, the, the news isn't trying to like, simply give you the news to report on facts. That's not the goal of the news. It's actually trying to shape your heart in a certain direction. It's trying to throw your universe off. And if you don't believe me, then why do you find yourself so fearful? 
Why are we such a fearful people? If you don't believe me, why is it that we're dealing with more depression and suicide and people that are just downright sad now more than we have ever before? And so let me ask you this. Are these things that you're giving your loves to, are they making you love God more and love your neighbor more? Are they? Are they driving you to love him and to love those around you? Or is it making you sort of shrink and shrink and shrink your world to where you're sort of circling the wagons out of fear of what might happen next? And the things that shape our loves, the things that sort of draw our affections, they're actually insidious. And we need to be really intentional about these things because now what happens over time in the same way that I came to love coffee and in the same way that media is shaping our loves is that things are sneaky in the way that they get in and they begin to shape your love. But what we see in this passage is Jesus is saying, God actually requires all of you. Like, love the Lord your God with a little bit of your heart, soul, mind. No, he says, actually, all, complete, with all your heart, soul, mind. And so there's this sort of priority of our whole life being discipled by him. But if there's a clear call that the, the, the love of God has to be the center of our life, then the love of God has to actually be the weightiest thing in our life. We have to recognize that, there's, that that's so often not true about us, that it is the weightiest thing. And so there's this problem that we so often try to organize our walk with Jesus in such, in such a way that we're basically still the ones that are in control. That, that, that's how we shape our lives. And so the reason we like this is because that means for the most part that we basically know what sorts of things God is asking, going to ask us to do, don't we? We've predetermined in our head. We basically know the sorts of people that God is going to call us to love because we've predetermined in our head who those people are that God would ask me to love and who the people are that God would not ask me to love. And so we basically know what sorts of people then that God is going to ask us to love um, or to hate or be for or against because in order to do this, in order to sort of contain and control God's lordship in our life, we begin to shrink who it is that God is. Like we boil him down to this little thing that really only allows us to love some people but not all. To lay our lives down for some but not everybody. And when we shrink down who God is, we like that because we can start to contain God ourselves. He fits in our world. And in fact, we basically can start to control God for ourselves. We manipulate him to do what it is we want when we want it. And yet the only way to true freedom in your life is to give our whole self to the Lord, to love the Lord your God with all of who you are. Like, we are actually designed to be this wholehearted people. We're designed to give our whole hearts to the one who created us, the one who knows us, the one who loves us, who gives us our very life, the breath that you're breathing now, the one that gave you the eyes and the ears and the hands and the feet. And when we live in this fallen world, we so often have these 
sort of divided hearts, right? Like our affections go multiple ways. It's not just all God. God might be the priority, but then right next to it is something else that is sharing some of that affection. Instead of looking at God as the sort of nucleus, the center of our solar system, like he's the thing that everything revolves around. And when we have these divided hearts, we're no longer a free people, right? And so in an attempt to sort of gain back our freedom, we start to put our hearts on the things that we think will give us freedom in this life, only to find out years later that it actually didn't grant us the freedom that we desired. And I think so many Christians are really frustrated about this, to be honest with you. And, and I think the problem is that we actually, uh, and I'll, I'll use this, this verbiage and I'll describe it in a little bit, but we actually straddle, straddle our strategy to joy. Like we, we all want wholeness, we all want joy in our life, but we end up choosing multiple strategies as a way to get to our joy. I mean, it's so interesting, you know, if you live in the business world, if whatever it is that that you find yourself connected to, like for career or whatever it is, you find yourself straddling multiple things in your life to try to find joy, and Jesus is just one of those things that you'll straddle in hopes that it's gonna get you joy, but you also have three or four other things that you're trying to straddle. So in other words, Jesus says that the strategy to get full joy and wholeness is to actually give your whole self to the love of God. Like that's what we're called to. Everything else will flow from that point, and yet we say, I don't know if that's actually true. Like, I don't know if that's actually possible. I, I read this, this article, it was a business article, and this guy from Harvard was like talking about this idea of straddling your strategy, and, and he's, a, he's this professor, and he was talking about straddling your strategy, and what he meant by this was you sort of straddle your strategy, uh, it, it means to like, Keep your, your existing strategy intact, whatever that is for your business, while then simultaneously like trying to adopt other strategies of the competitor at the same time. And what happens to your business long term is you don't really know who you are at all because you've taken on all these other strategies in hopes to keep up with everybody else, but you've lost your strategy completely. Such an interesting concept when you relate that to our relationship with Jesus. If I was to ask right now, is God really the center of your life? Does your whole life revolve around him? Like, is, is he the center of your universe? Many of us would say yes, yes. But many decisions we make in our life do not reflect that yes. They reflect all the other things, the strategies, in order to keep up with this and keep up with that and do this and do that. All of a sudden, we've taken on so many strategies that we lost the main strategy. We lost actually our identity and who we are in Christ because we've tried so hard to adopt everything else to keep up with everybody else. Your loves have been given away everywhere else so much so that you can't figure out what it even means for Jesus to be at the center of your universe anymore. In this case, Jesus is saying like, the way to wholeness is to give your whole life to the love of God, to love God at the center of who you are. And I, I, I want to I don't know what time it is. I want to wrap this up with a couple more thoughts because the follow-up in this passage, like we cannot talk about loving our neighbor unless we talk about what we just talked about. Jesus tells us in this passage in verse 37, 
He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So there's an assumption. The assumption is, is that this is the best for you, to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And the assumption that Jesus is making is this is how you actually thrive, right? The, the assumption is that this is what God has made for you. The assumption is that... that, 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 that um, not that here's the rule that you need to keep if you're going to stay on God's good side. The, the assumption is that this is where flourishing is actually found in Christ. And, and it's important for us to recognize that there's this promise that God is saying, when you actually surrender the throne of your heart to him, when the love of God becomes the sun or the solar system in your life, the weightiest thing in your life, the promise is that there you will find freedom, that there you will actually find joy, that there you will actually find fullness and wholeness. And the other thing that I love about this is that what this means when we fully embrace this is that there's not a single aspect of our life that God doesn't care about. Every part of it. There's not a single aspect of our life that God is not present in. He's present in it all. Like, I'm going to tell you, the last week since I started studying this passage and trying to get ready for this morning, I've had more uncanny, like, one-on-one situations with people come up than ever before, and each time it has been in the most inconvenient point in my life. Every single time. Maybe it was with some of you in this room, you're like, why does he look so confused? You messed with my life, you know what I mean? Like, you <laughs> showed up at the wrong, ta- wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but it's been uncanny to watch this unfold because what I'm finding is that if God is present in all of our lives and we truly believe that, then we look at every moment, every minute of our life as an opportunity that God could show up in in any way, shape, or form and put other things on hold because he's actually in charge of it all. And I've watched him do that. Over and over this last week, just weird, uncanny situations. What's really weird is that one of those situations, the way it panned out in relation to this text, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, the follow-up to loving your neighbor, one of these situations was so discouraging for me because I'm like sitting there having this amazing conversation with the person about Jesus, somebody I haven't seen in a really long time. And at the same time, this other person comes up, just enters our conversation, and this person starts talking about um, Jesus. Like, I could tell that these two people had this connection about, like, in the Lord. Like, they they knew they were believers. Somehow they had been connected, like, through church at some point in time. And so there's this conversation about the Lord that then switches. And all of a sudden, the conversation starts, like, bashing out-of-towners. And I'm like standing there listening. I'm like, this is getting so weird. Like, I want to bow out. Because on one hand, we're, we're talking about like loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. We're talking about loving our neighbor. But then when that actually means somebody who poses a threat to my life or has changed, had an impact, like there's no way I can love that person. And all of a sudden, it's okay to start talking hate speech. (laughs) And it was really a really interesting dichotomy for me, which for me was Jesus painting this picture for me of of his church, that we're living in a day and age where we can profess to love him with everything. We can even profess to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
but yet we've dictated for God who that neighbor is and who we will and won't love and who he will and won't send into our life to actually be selfless enough to love them the way that Christ loves them. And that's sticky business. That's not the way Jesus sees each and every soul, each and every human. When we look at our life as this holistic form of discipleship, like all of our life revolving around him, all of a sudden we begin to see that every encounter, every task, every situation actually does have this divine purpose. It has this divine possibility. Like we can live in this adventure with God because God is calling us to himself and God is in this business of redeeming all things. And then when we are with God, we now become on the mission with God in all aspects of our life. And so you see, when when we live our lives in partnership with God, loving him with all our heart and soul and mind, all our affections, our allegiance, our actions devoted to him, then the last part of this verse becomes very natural for us to do because it all flows out of that. This is the, first, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, Jesus said. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says. We cannot love others if we first do not have our lives devoted to God. Because the love, the, supernat- or the, the superficial love that we have actually determines who we can and can't love. But the supernatural love of God transcends our ability like, to divide, pick and choose who we love and don't love, to see enemies as people that even we can love, to look past unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment, all of these things, because we're looking at it through the lens of that solar system. Who is it that we revolve around? And how is it that that thing that we revolve around is actually keeping our life intact? And what does it look like if that thing is actually influencing every other thing? You love people differently. You look at people differently. Loving your neighbor doesn't become something that's just like, I do it in my time, in my way, where I want to. It becomes something where you're looking at all of life as the opportunity to literally love the person who shares the image of God with you wherever he places you, whenever he places you there. That's his goal. But first it starts with us, our lives, being revolving around him. And what's unfortunate is that I, I often see in, in believers and even in myself this idea that we can, this trap that we can fall into that we can love without liking, right? You can love people, but you don't have to like them. I'm like, what? If my wife was like, I love you, but I don't like you, I'd be like, that really sucks. You know, like something needs to be fixed here. Like that's not cool with me. Something would feel off. If I went to my enemy and I was like, dude, I love you, I don't like you, my enemy would be like, do you actually love me? Like, that would be the rebuttal to that statement. And we're living in this world that's trying to convince Christians to go love people, to just go out there and do something, like act, go love, do all the right things, without actually possessing the love of God first and foremost in our lives. And so for the Pharisees, what was it they hoped to accomplish in this scenario that they're addressing Jesus in? They hoped Jesus would call out maybe like one of the Ten Commandments. Like how are they going to get him on this whole thing? Is there one that he's going to pick over all others? 
And in Jesus' fashion, Jesus even sort of sums up the Ten Commandments, all ten, like up into two, because in the Ten Commandments, you basically have three that are about God. You have one that's upholding the Sabbath, which is our relationship to God, and then you've got six others that are all about how we care for others, how we love others. It's our relationship with others. And Jesus basically says all the law, Everything you guys know, the Pharisees, like you Pharisaical people, everything that you know, all the law pointed to this. In fact, all the prophets pointed to this. Love God and love others. That's really the epitome of the Christian life, of the disciple of Jesus. And to do either of those things apart from one another is not really love. You can't just love God and then not love anybody else, or just rush out and try to love people and hope that that gets you your love for God because it just doesn't work. And so I'm gonna leave you guys, I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up, but I'm gonna leave you with a couple bulleted points that as I was thinking about practically what does it mean for us to love our neighbor? What does it mean? Here's eight things. One, that we receive God's love. Like you wanna go love others? Receive his love for you first and foremost. Two, show grace. Like we have to be a people that, that because of the grace been extended to us, that we will extend that grace to others. Three, that we have to be a people to act and we act with compassion. Like our hearts break for the things that break God's heart. Four, we look out for other people's well-being. Sometimes even being willing to lay down our own well-being to put somebody else's first. Five, we have to be a people that serve others. Like, you have to be willing to get your hands dirty and serve people. Six, we have to be a people that speak kindly of others because we don't live in a world that does that naturally. We're always tearing each other down. Like, the church needs to be those which are always speaking life, always building people up, encouraging, edifying, like speaking life to people, speaking kindly of others. Seven, we need to be a people to actually share in people's joys and their sorrows, right? Like, we aren't just gonna love people when we're sharing in their joy. We actually want to lock, hand, lock arms with people in the midst of their sorrows, like their deepest points of pain, to be a people that would walk with them through that not necessarily have all the answers for it, but walk with them through it and continue to point them back to Jesus. And the last one is this, is we have to be a people that's, that are willing to forgive. And I can't help but sit in pockets of Christians and think that the primary thing that the enemy is gonna use to divide the church and to wreak havoc on believers' hearts is unforgiveness. It is core. You talk to anybody in this room that works in um, like mental health, anybody in this room that works in counseling, they'll always start at forgiveness. Like, where are the pockets of unforgiveness in your life? Where are the deep roots? Let's go back to those things because those are impacting everything else. And I think in Jesus' statement, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that what Jesus is saying is, first and foremost, I want to engage the heart. If I engage the heart... Loving the neighbor is a natural overflow of us putting him at the center of our solar system. So where are you at this morning? 
when I hold up these two diagrams, figuratively this morning, there's a diagram here and one here, and one has Jesus on the throne of it, and you including you and all of the other things in your life revolve around that throne. Or there's the other one, where you are sitting on the throne, and everything else in life, including Jesus, revolves around you. And so the way you make decisions is always what's best for you, not what is it that he's asking of you. And do you fall in one of those camps this morning, or do you fall in the, the, the gray area of being somebody who's just like, well, I'm kind of a both hand, you know? Me and Jesus get to share the throne together, which I would say is actually you aligning with the throne on the other side. Like, Jesus will not share that spot. Do you love him with all your heart and your soul and your mind? Do we love our neighbors ourselves? Like, there's no better verse than this to say, church, as we leave these four walls today, I'm gonna hold two things before you and say, let's do this well. Let's love him and let's love our neighbor. Let's love the people around us, the people he puts in contact with us at any point in time throughout your year. Let's love the ones that we do not want to love. Let's love the ones that have done the most wrong against us. What does it look like? for us to continue to bestow on them the same love that the God of the universe has granted us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I want to thank you for uh, just the amazing opportunity it is to love and serve you, God. And I know me included, there's many of us that struggle sometimes to allow so many other loves in our life, things to gain our affection, things to gain our actions and our time things to gain our allegiance. And we're guilty, God, of allowing our hearts to be given to those things. I pray this morning, God, that as we come before you, that just very simply you begin to identify the things in our life that we've withheld to ourselves. The areas of lives where, of our life where we might say with our mouth that we love you with our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, but there's definite points in our life that we've held back from allowing to circle your solar system, your sun, God. And so I pray this morning, God, that as we um, end the service, that instead of us just being a people that have crammed our heads full of knowledge and we've memorized a verse, that we'd be a people that as we leave here continue to go to you and say, God, what does it look like for me to love you in all of my life? And God, what does it look like for me to love my neighbor? sacrifice for somebody else, to love those that you love in the way that you love them, Jesus. And so, God, I thank you for this time and for each soul in this room. I just am praying, God, that you would be at work in their lives. Lord, I thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross, Lord, that you sent your son to live the sinless life, to be pinned to the cross on wrongful account after wrongful account, in order that through his death and his resurrection, we would be granted new life. We would be granted forgiveness. We would be granted eternity with you, Jesus. And so I pray this morning, Lord, if there are those in this room that do not know you, that have never started this journey with you, do not have a relationship with you, that that's where they'd start this morning. It's not, how do I go love my neighbor? Or how do I love God? But first and foremost, they'd say, what is it that God did for me? He gave up his only son that through his death and his resurrection, I would actually find new life. 
this morning would be a starting place for some in this room to devote their lives to you and then in turn begin this journey of learning to love you and have their affections and their allegiance and their actions be transformed by you, Jesus, and turned to you, Jesus. And in turn, may we just love people well. Fill our hearts with your love for others. Fill our mouths with words that would speak life for others. Give our hands and our feet and our eyes the ability to serve people in ways that we can be the extension of your hands and your feet to those on this earth that you want to show your love through us to them. In your name we pray.